Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 170 with Marianne Esposito. Do you have any tips for anyone who might want to write their own cookbook, having done this so much, even not necessarily like one that's going to be in a store, but, you know, self-publishing, just like tips, like where to get started if you think you might want to do this. Do you have any advice? Uh, you know, not everybody is organized enough to write uh, any kind of materials. I mean, they could scatter themselves here or there and everywhere. I would say you really should have have a plan, have a theme. You know, what is it that you want to say? What is the message that you're trying to get across? And then stick with that. Because if you go to a big publishing house, they often ask you, you know, they, they want an overview of what you're going to do. You know, who's your audience? What are you going to talk about? Who knows you? Those kinds of things. But I think there's a, there is a role in self-publishing uh, for anybody who's interested in that. And, and in some places, you can find small publishing houses that are looking for new and different material, and you can investigate those. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to Chefs Without Restaurants. I'm your host, Chris Spear. On this show, I talk to culinary entrepreneurs and people working in the food and beverage industry outside of a traditional restaurant setting. This week, I have chef, author, and TV personality, Marianne Esposito. She's the creator and host of the nationally televised PBS series, Ciao Italia, with Marianne Esposito. The author of 14 books, most recently, Ciao Italia, Plant Harvest Cook, Marianne has worked beside world-renowned chefs like Julia Child, Jacques Pepin, Martin Yan, and countless others. When not filming, she can be found giving hands-on cooking classes. Her new book takes the reader on a seasonal home garden vegetable journey, focusing on simple growing tips for anyone interested in growing their own vegetables and how to cook them Italian style. Long before there was the Food Network, Marianne was cooking on her own show. At this point, she's got more than 30 years doing this, making her the longest current host of a cooking TV show. I was so honored that she came on the show to talk about her new cookbook and cooking Italian food and gardening. Her new book will be out next Tuesday, November 15th. And yes, it's November, but it's never too early to start thinking about your garden. On the show, we talk about how she plans hers in January. So I think now would be a great time to pick up that book and start thinking about what you want to grow next year. On the show, I talked to her about things like container gardening and gardening in small spaces. And if you're not interested in gardening, this is also an amazing cookbook that you know focuses on fresh seasonal vegetables. She even talks through some of her favorite recipes. So you'll hear about things like how she makes her preserved sun-dried tomatoes, her zucchini roll-ups, and even a quick jambalaya-esque weeknight dinner. So whether you're a longtime fan of Marianne's or you're just discovering her now, I think you're going to love this show, especially if you're really into growing and cooking local seasonal produce and Italian food. I'd also like to take a quick second to say, go check out the book Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door by Emmanuel LaRoche. You might know Emmanuel as the host of the Flavors Unknown podcast. He's been a guest on this show, and I'm truly honored that I got to be a part of this book. 
And of course, the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast and community wouldn't be possible without the support of my amazing sponsors. So please take a listen to this week's sponsor messages. The show will be coming up right after those words. Over the past 30 years, the world of the personal chef has grown in importance to fulfill those dining needs. While the pandemic certainly upended the restaurant experience, it allowed personal chefs to close that dining gap. Central to all of that is the United States Personal Chef Association. Representing nearly 1,000 chefs around the U.S. and Canada, USPCA provides a strategic backbone to those chefs that includes liability insurance, training, communications, certification, and more. It's a reassurance to consumers that the chef coming into their home is prepared to offer them an experience with their meal. USPCA provides training to become a personal chef through our preparatory membership. Looking to showcase your products or services to our chefs and their clients? Partnership opportunities are available. Call Angela today at 1-800-995-2138, extension 705, or email her at A-P-R-A-T-H-E-R at USPCA.com for membership and partner info. Are you still keeping your recipes in docs? Doing your costing in spreadsheets? Well, you should try Mies, the recipe tool designed for chefs by chefs. Founded by professional chef Josh Sharkey, Mies transforms your recipe content into a powerful digital format that lets you organize, scale, train, and cost like never before. See why Mies is loved by over 12,000 culinary professionals. Sign up for a free account today at getmees.com forward slash CWR. That's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com forward slash C-W-R. And on a personal note, I've been using Mies almost daily. I wish I had this tool years ago. The ability to quickly scale a recipe up or down, or to search across all recipes for a single ingredient like pumpkin. And if you really want to get an in-depth breakdown, I had Mies founder Josh Sharkey on the podcast a few months ago. That was episode 155, released in July of 2020. So go check it out to find out what Mies is all about. This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own pickles, the chemistry behind ceviche, the formula for perfect homemade pretzels, and much, much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality, with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 2 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to youtube.com forward slash L-A-B-X-N-A-S. Hey, Marianne, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on today. Well, thank you, and ciao. Ciao, yes. In many ways, it's ciao. Ciao high and ciao food, right? Absolutely. (laughs) This is such an honor because I've watched you for so many years. You know, I... um, have been in the food world for 30 years now, and you've been on food TV for 30 years. You know, back when I started cooking and, you know, I was a teenager, I guess 1992 is when I started uh, cooking while I was still in high school. You know, yeah. back then we didn't really have Food Network and this whole food TV thing that has exploded was just in its infancy back then. Yes, yes, yes. Before Food TV emer- or the Food Network emerged, actually. Ciao Italia was out there as, uh, you know, the, one of the first Italian cooking shows. And it has maintained that now through these 30 years. It's, it's been an uninterrupted series that is, you know, the longest running cooking show in the States. 
Did you ever think that was going to happen? No. <laughs> when I started out, I actually was thinking about just doing like a little cable show, you know, for my local TV station. And then once I did that, they sent that out to see how what kind of reaction that we would get from the public. And we got really great reaction. And they said, well, you know, why don't you consider doing a series for us? So then I did. And then they, they sent it to PBS. And then that was the beginning of Ciao Italia on a national level. Wow. 30 years. So you are yeah. the longest current running cooking show. That's right. Yep, that's right. We have food TV royalty here. And, and I hear real royalty. Were you knighted or, or some such thing by the president of Italy? Yes, that was quite an honor. Uh, several years ago, uh, I received the uh, the Star of Italy Award for my work with Italian food. So always, I, it was it was a, quite an honor. So you have your fourteenth cookbook coming out. Yes, uh, yes. Thirty years of TV. We're going to go into the cookbook, but I want to kind of start back with the food TV. How did that all come about? I know your uh, parents or mother were in food and yeah. kind of grew up in a a family that loves eating and cooking, but how did this whole professional cooking thing come about? Well, it, it came about when I made my first trip to Italy. Obviously, I was just enamored by what was there in terms of not only the food, but the culture, you know, art and everything that was there. The people were wonderful. The food was wonderful. Everything was wonderful. And everything that my grandparents had ever told me about Italy was, you know, the light bulb went on. And so I thought, gee, you know, I'm really, I'm really appreciating this. I think maybe I'd like to enroll in a cooking school. So I went to Sorrento, uh, and I, I, um, enrolled in a cooking class. And it was, I remember the, the, uh, the chef, Lorenzo Flus. He was, uh, half Italian, half Austrian. And I thought, well, what does he know about Italian food? You know, he's half Austrian, he's half Italian. But, um, that was my introduction into regional Italian food because the chef, the first class, we were uh, instructed to make lasagna. And of course, my my grandmothers and my mother, they are professional cooks. And so I knew how to make lasagna. I knew what lasagna sheets would look like. And the, the chefs were far from what they were doing, but I wasn't going to tell him that. And uh, But that was my introduction. And I just kept going back and forth over the years since 1985, I believe, was the first year I went. And I just kept going to different regions of Italy, cooking in their schools. And I am not a, I did not go to culinary school. I am a home cook. I've made that clear to people. And everything I know, I've learned from mistakes and from observation and from being uh, in locales and learning from other chefs. So that's how I got into, you know, doing the cooking show. You know, obviously, there's many different regions. Growing up kind of in America, and I'm not from Italian heritage, it's kind of generalized as like Italian food and Italian cooking. And you think of kind of actually like red sauce and Italian American type things. Yes. But there's so much variety in Italy, just the same way we wouldn't want the U.S. generalized. You know, cooking in New England is so different from Creole in New Orleans versus Tex-Mex, you know, but we kind of do that with other countries. Yes, exactly. And so that became the premise of the show, actually, is to, to teach people that there's more than red sauce that defines what Italian cooking is. In fact, on my first show, I said, there is no such thing as Italian food. There is only regional food. And that's the common denominator that I've stuck by these 30 years, taking people all over Italy, you know, from the Piedmont to Sicily, to show them what this diversity is is really like. And that has been a kind of a lifelong 
uh, God, journey, because there's so much to know about Italian regional food. You would never really cover it in a lifetime. I could do another 30 years. <laughs> do you have a personal favorite region or style of cooking? Well, I'm very partial to the South, of course, because that's my heritage. I'm half a Sicilian and half a Neapolitan. So I've got the, uh, the two, you know, the two grandmothers ensconced in those two regions. And a lot of the cooking that was done at home was based on what they knew from their regions. But all of the regions are wonderful. I mean, I'm going to be taking a group in a few weeks to Umbria. Uh, which is in the central part of Italy. And the food there is very different from what you're going to find in the South. I mean, we're going to be working with pork and lentils and black truffles, things like that, that are, are particular to that region. And it's this kind of information that I've been trying to impart to our viewers that, you know, when you go to Italy, keep your eyes open because everything that you think is Italian food is not. That sounds like an amazing trip. I've never even been to Italy. It's on my list oh, of places. Oh, yeah. You need to go. I had some go. relatives living there for a while, and we thought we were going to get to visit, and we didn't. Um, I guess we kind of missed that boat. So we're going to have to go sometime soon. So how has the show evolved over 30 years? You know, you didn't go into it thinking you were going to be on that long. What have you seen change? And it could be within your show, but also like the the viewers and the public. I mean, I think knowledge of food has also changed so much with the general public. Yeah, knowledge of food has changed in the fact that people started traveling. You know, like in the in the 90s, people knew what certain cooking shows were. Like there was Julia Child and Jacques Pepin and and uh, Graham Kerr out there. And then I came along and started doing Italian cooking. But that just kind of like opened the floodgates because now, even if you couldn't go to these countries, you could be exposed to what kind of foods uh, they ate through, through the media. So I see a big change in people's understanding of foods beyond their comfort zone. Uh, I've changed a lot over the 30 years. I mean, when I started in 1989 doing my very first series, my depth of knowledge about Italian regional foods was not what it is today. So in 30 years, I have amassed a lot of information, but that's only because of research and study along the way. And I think people have a real appreciation for ethnic foods in general. But as you know, Italian food is always at the top of the list, right? You go to any city, they've got more Italian restaurants than they do French restaurants. They've got How more. How did that happen? Do you, have, <laughs> do you have insight? Because, you know, we it's almost become Americanized. Like, we don't even think of it as ethnic anymore. Right. How did that happen? Well, I think, you know, part of it is that Italian food is so approachable. There isn't that aura of what's complicated to do. You know, it's, and you, need, you need special ingredients and you have to know all these techniques. Italian cooking Italian foods is very simple because the premise of an Italian cook is this use quality ingredients in season and keep the treatment simple. That's it. So when someone says to me, well, what's your favorite a pasta dish? And I say, oh, easy, cacio pepe, cacio pepe, cheese and pepper. And they say, what? Where's the rest of the ingredients? You don't need the rest of the ingredients. That's it. These three ingredients are perfect for making a cacio pepe, a classic, a classic um, Roman dish. So Italian food is based on that premise. And I think people understand that, that they don't have to, they don't have to fuss. They can make something that's very simple, 
a grilled piece of fish with a great drizzle of a good extra virgin olive oil and a squirt of lemon is really all you need. You don't have to make a complicated sauce, right? So I think it's the comfort zone too that, oh, I can do that. And I think when people watch my program, that's what they come away with. I can find the ingredients. It's going to taste good and I can do it. And quality is huge there because you don't have anything to hide behind. That's right. If you're doing a dish that has four ingredients, you really need to nail it. You really need to nail it. Exactly. One of those ingredients is obviously produce. And this is kind of a good segue into your new book because your new book focuses on growing awesome produce to be used in Italian dishes. That's right. Ciao Italia, plant, harvest, cook, and... Even if you don't plant or harvest, you can still cook from this book because there's over 120 recipes in here. But also what I do is I've selected the most popular Italian vegetables, you know, cauliflower, broccoli rabe, artichoke, zucchini, eggplant, tomatoes. And I've told you the story of how Italians use these vegetables and how they transform these vegetables into some classic dishes and not so classic dishes. And then the other aspect of this book is that if you want to do your own garden, you can. And I'm going to give you some simple planting tips. Now I say in the introduction to this book that everything I know about planting and harvesting a vegetable garden has come from my husband Gaetano. Because since we've been married, we've always had a garden, even a little plot of land. And he is Italian too. And so our grandparents had gardens. And what I'm getting to is that it's in your DNA to do this. So over the years, we have evolved with the garden, of course, just like I've evolved with the show. And over the years, the garden has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. Now it's 30 by 60. We not only feed ourselves, but I can't tell you the number of people that we give stuff to, which is a great feeling. But then, you know, somebody who's listening to this might say, well, you know what? I live in the city. I don't have a backyard. But you could do container gardening. And if you're in Italy, you look up in the city, up on balconies, and what do you see in apartment buildings? You see pots of basil and tomatoes and you know things that Italians love to cook with. They make it work. They'll plant it in a container. And if you even can't do that, you could always join a community garden where you live, or you could just go to your local farmer's market. There are a lot of options with cooking from this book with vegetables that you don't have to plant and harvest. But because we can and we do, I felt that it was important to add that element of how do you plant a vegetable garden? What do you start with? And I always tell people, you start by thinking small. Because most people have a, are, you know, they, oh, I'm going to do a garden. And then they just have no idea what's involved in that. In this book, I tell you that when we plan our garden each year, it starts in January on a legal yellow pad of paper when the snow is flying and you're hardly thinking that, you know, you're going to get a vegetable or anything. And we map out a plan. You make a plan. That's the first thing. Second thing, where are you going to plant that garden? You have to think about things like, is it going to get enough sunlight? Do you have a source of water? These are things I talk about in the book. And I've divided the book into two sections. 
the spring garden, which deals with spring vegetables like lettuce, which you would never plant in hot weather. And then the summer garden, where you're planting hot weather crops like eggplant and tomatoes and peppers to give people a sense that you can't put everything in the garden at one time. I think that's what everyone wants to do. They want to go, you know, you see everyone at Lowe's on Memorial Day weekend <laughs> right. uh, grabbing like 80 plants and they just drop everything in all at once. Right. Yeah. So I, I think it's a, a good tool, you know, for people because at least in the planting uh, information, it tells you, you know, what certain plants like. Like, for instance, eggplant and, and tomatoes. Well, you've got to plant those really where they get a lot of sun most of the day. And then as those plants are growing, for instance, like for, for uh, tomatoes, you want to cage them so that they're not all flopping on the ground. So these are just simple tips that I'm giving you. You don't have to have a PhD in horticulture to understand uh, the planting part of this book, because I don't. As I said, I, everything I know, I learned from my husband, Guy, and I've learned about the mistakes, what not to do, and what to do. Do you do any kind of canning or preser preservation with stuff? Yes. Uh, in the book, I talk to you about, uh, there's a story I call Season in the Cellar, where it's uh, centered around what the house that I grew up in and what my grandmothers and mother did during the biggest part of the summer season. They would be canning the tomatoes, the peaches, the peppers, the jardinier. I hated this job because my job was to rinse all the canning jars, make sure the lids were clean, all of that stuff. So I have said no to that. I used to do that, but I don't do that anymore. What I did was I invested in a dehydrator, number one, and two freezers because of the work I do as a, as a chef, of course. And I, I realize not everybody has two freezers, but I have utilized my freezer and my dehydrator to preserve a lot of the vegetables in our garden. So for instance, on pl for plum tomatoes is an example. I grow a variety called Redorta. It's an Italian variety. You can find the seeds in a garden store or online. I cut the tomatoes in half. Wash, they're washed. I cut the tomatoes in half. Then I have a dehydrator with different racks. I put the tomatoes on with the cut side down, making the racks, and then I cover it. Then I put it on low heat, and I let those tomatoes just dehydrate, get moist, most of the moisture out. Until they're bendable, you know, almost they're to the consistency of a dried apricot. When they're at that stage, and you can find this recipe not only in the book, but also on our website, chowitalia.com, when they're at that state, when they're bendable and mostly dried, I put them in clean, sterilized jars, glass jars, with extra virgin olive oil, salt, whole black peppercorns. And then I make sure that I top off the jar with olive oil. You don't want any tomatoes seeping up through the oil. This is an old, old technique that was used in the days of ancient Rome. And then I cap them. I put them in a water bath canner. And then I just, I just let them go for 45, 50 minutes. And then I, I have them all year long. And they're absolutely, they're fabulous because it concentrates the sugar in the tomato and in the wintertime, they're great as a sauce for, for a pasta or as a bruschetta. You know, you want to make a little bread slice with some tomatoes over the top. And it just brings back a whole taste of summer in the middle of winter. And that oil's delicious, isn't it? Oh, and then you use the oil for cooking. And, and you can drizzle that over your, you know, your crostini or whatever. And I do the same thing with eggplant. Um, for cherry tomatoes, I just gather them from the garden, put them in plastic bags, stem them and everything. Throw them in the freezer. You want to make tomato soup? Great. 
You take out a bag of these frozen marbles now, and you put them in a pot. I add just a smidge of water to, to film the bottom, and I let those tomatoes cook down. Then I take my immersion blender, zip, 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 all done, nice and pureed. Then I add whatever spices I want to add, and you have the most delicious tasting because it's fresh tomatoes that you've captured. The best soup, and you can add things to it, like I add my Parmesan cheese rinds to it, or I'll cook some uh, orzo or some rice, add that to it, or farro. I'll put some cooked vegetables in with it. It's it's fabulous. So this is these are several ways that you can, uh, you know, preserve summer's bounty. Do you feel you need to uh, strain out seeds and skins from tomatoes when you do something like that? Because that's like a hot topic. And some people are saying, yeah, it doesn't matter. And some say, absolutely, you have to. You know, to. I do it both ways. I really don't think it matters. But um, when I use the immersion blender, oftentimes, I will then put them in a sieve, you know, get the seeds and the, and the skin out. That's good to know. Yeah, I have a lot of the grape tomatoes. And um that's one of those things we do the same thing is we'll just throw them in and puree them up. And again, it's time. Some days I'm just like, it tastes delicious. You know, if you're not getting like the skin bits in your mouth or big obnoxious seeds, I just go with it. So what do you have for suggestions for container gardening? This is something I want to do more of, but I just find that I don't get the growth in my plants. Like we have terrible soil in our backyards. It's like clay. And I've tried to do raised beds where I'm putting a ton of stuff in there and we mulch, but it just like, that's a, a mess on its own with all the weeds and everything. I would love to do more containers, but when I put them in containers, I get these stunted little plants. You know, I know you have to water them more. Do you have any tips without kind of knowing what I'm doing? Well, first of all, you want you want to start with really good soil in, in your containers. And secondly, don't use clay containers because clay containers, you will be watering uh, every day because they dry out very easily. You, you can get beautiful looking containers that are, I hate to say plastic, but that's what they are. You know, they're recycled from something else. And to me, that that is really important. Plus, you want to make sure these containers have really good drainage. And even if they do, when you put your plants in here and you want to use good soil, you want to make sure that you put some pebbles or stones down around the holes, you know, around the drainage holes, because that's going to help the water seep out through the bottom. My husband, yeah, try that. Just, you just put some stones in there, you know, now don't block the holes, just put some stones in and then plant your, your, uh, what do you want to make? What do you want to do? Tomatoes? If you yeah, like tomatoes and peppers would be a great start, like putting some tomato plants and some jalapeno plants and stuff. Right. So if, are you starting the plants from seed? A little of both. So I love to start inside with seed for things. Um, and some, depending on what it is, I'll buy a plant already started. Okay. So from, if you're starting from seed, of course, you gotta, you gotta uh, plant those seeds. And we do that under grow lights in the basement where we're watching these uh, seedlings come up when they're the right height. Uh, and they have enough true leaves on them. And I talked to you about what true leaves are in the book. Then you can transfer them at the appropriate climate time. So you don't want to do tomatoes, you know, in March, you want to make unless you're living in a warm climate. And I tell you that in the book that this book was written for zone five. So in the Northeast, because that's where I live. So I say, you know, look at your your what zone you're in, and then adjust accordingly, the time that you're going to spend putting your seedlings in and when you're going to put them in because you know, in the south in, in March, you can put tomato plants in in Georgia, but you can't do that in New Hampshire. So 
If you're starting with seedlings, you've got your seedlings to the point where now you have to harden them off, which means that these little seedlings you have to take outside and let them get used to the weather. So you take them outside, you put them in the sun. At night, you take them back in. You do this for about a week until you're ready to plant. Then you can put them in your container. You can put them in your container. And for tomatoes, you want to at some point when they're tall enough, I would say when they're about 14 inches tall, you want to cage them so that they are going to grow upright through the uh, the cage and not flop over on the sides because that's not very good for supporting the tomatoes at all. You could also grow basil. You could do uh, cucumbers because, you know, you could cucumbers, you can do the climbing variety. So you could do that. Uh, on your, in a container garden. There's so many things. Herbs, all kinds of herbs can go in containers. Um, what else? Peppers. Peppers would be perfect for container garden. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping is peppers and tomatoes. My herbs do really well in the ground. We found a nice spot for that. And it's just, it's a lot, it's been a lot of work doing the gardening. So mm-hmm. we're kind of trying to figure out what works. Yeah, that, that's, it's, that's a whole lot easier on the weed sets, sense too, because then you don't have to do all this weeding like we have to do. That's the big thing that I'm really trying to get away from. Yeah. So for that, I tell you in the book, you know, you need to think about using black plastic and um, straw to keep the weeds down if you have a large garden. I mean, ours is fairly large. So, you know, we, we can't be just weeding by hand every day. So we use utilize black plastic and the uh, and hay to help keep the weeds down between the rows. So besides the tips on gardening in the book, it's obviously also a cookbook. Yeah. How have you seen the recipes kind of change? Like, I mean, I see oh, yeah. things like cauliflower crust pizza in your book. So you've obviously evolved with kind of the times and some of the trends. Yes. Uh, yes. But how do you keep it fresh and interesting after all those books? Well, I try to give you some tips that maybe you don't know about, you know, for cauliflower. Like for instance, people struggle with taking out the core of a cauliflower because it's a mess, right? Things with those little florets are going everywhere. So I tell you, you know, if you just turn the cauliflower, the whole head upside down, and you just go around the core with a knife, everything will just fall off very easily. And you'll be able to take those little florets and do whatever you want with them. Um, the other thing is, of course, riced cauliflower, which became very popular, right? In the last six or seven years, everybody's using riced cauliflower instead of rice. So, you know, I, I keep ahead of these kinds of trends. And I think, well, now how can I use that uh, to my advantage? One of the other, uh, one of the recipes that really comes to mind for this is my mother's upside down stuffed peppers. So she was very, um, ahead of her time as well. So why cook, why make stuffed peppers right side up? Who, who needs to do that? Do them upside down. Why would she do them upside down? Well, because this way they don't dry out. So you would just stuff your pepper, you know, with your meat mixture the way you would do it, or if you're not using a meat mixture, something else. That's a and there's a binder there that's holding that all in. When you have that pepper stuffed, you just put your hand on top, you turn it upside down into the bake dish, and you give it a drizzle of olive oil, you cover it with some foil, you bake until the the um, peppers are starting to get soft, and you stick a knife in there and it goes in very easily. And then when you're ready to eat them. You turn the peppers right side up. You put the caps back on, which you've also cooked in the oven with the peppers upside down. And you'd be surprised how moist this is. Another thing, another little magic thing I've done for my son, Chris, who hates vegetables. I have taken zucchini and 
I shred the zucchini, and then I put it in bags, little plastic bags, stick it in the freezer. Then when I'm making meatloaf or hamburgers or any other kind of a ball, meatball, I put the, I put the shredded zucchini in there for moisture. He has no idea that it's in there, but he loves them. So, you know, things like that. And then one of the other things I did with zucchini just recently was I made a jelly roll with zucchini. So I took a bake sheet and lined it with parchment paper. And then I sliced rounds of zucchini, thin slices. I usually do that on a mandolin, but you could do it by hand if you know how to use a knife and cut those things very thinly. And I took these slices and I tossed them with some olive oil, some uh, Sicilian herbs from oregano, salt, pepper, and I laid them in a single layer, covered the pan. Then I took some eggs, like you were making scrambled eggs. I seasoned them. I poured this all over to cover the zucchini. So now I have the egg all over the zucchini. Oven's on 350. Stick it in the oven for about 12 minutes, just till those eggs are set. Then I take it out. Meanwhile, I have some prosciutto ready and some cheese. It can be any kind of cheese, a, sh- a shredded cheese, a good sh- melting cheese like a fontina. I put the ham down. I put the cheese over it. And then starting at the short end of the parchment paper, I use the paper to roll up this zucchini roll. So it looks like a jelly roll now. So I put it back in the oven. You look scared there. And I cook it for now for another a few minutes. And you cut it crosswise and, you know, people think, wow. And then you see these pretty, you know, rounds of zucchini within the within the egg mixture. It just, you know. I'm trying to visualize it in my head because I hear jelly roll. And, you know, that's always one of those things like with cakes that I'm like, it's it's kind of, um, you know, you're on the edge of your seat to see if you did it right. That sounds really delicious, though. It is very good. I, you know what? I'll send you a picture of it. I, uh, I think I, you know, and with zucchini, it's one of those things in the summer that, you always have so much of. If you're not growing it, you know someone at work or a neighbor who is who wants to come and drop off five pounds of zucchini right. at your house. One of the other things I did, which is kind of a little unique, is I made a tomato marmalade. I said, you know, if you have a garden or you're going to the farmer's market or you just love tomatoes and you have a lot of them, why don't you try making this tomato marmalade, which is really great with all kinds of cheeses. So basically, you know, it's any kind of tomato that you want to use, except I, I really don't like the plum for this because uh, I think plum tomatoes are really belong as a sauce tomato, but you could use cherry tomatoes for this. You could use a, a, a beefsteak tomato if you wanted to. I so I chop up the tomatoes and I've got them in a pot with uh, a studded um, shallot. I stud the shallots with um, whole cloves. I've got a, a stick of cinnamon in there. I've got grated ginger. I have sugar. I've got balsamic vinegar, salt. I let this go. I cook this until I can make a trench. Through the at the bottom of the pot. In other words, you know, I can take my spoon, go down the center of the pot, and it it divides like the, the you know the Red Sea, and I can see the bottom of the pot. At that point, I know that the marmalade is thick enough. Then I just put this in jars and I freeze it. I freeze. I give it away as Christmas presents. People love it, and you and you just put a little bit of it on, you know, like a, a goat cheese or um, any kind of cheese, a soft cheese, uh, you know, even hard cheeses, and it's. Just delicious. It's it's and it's a great way to use up tomatoes. So those are some different things that I've tried to do. I also have a section in there about herbs. And one of the things I decided to do, because I love scented geraniums. And scented geranium leaves you can eat. You just need Oh, I didn't know. Yes, that. you can eat scented geranium leaves. So I had a rose scented geranium plant. So I took the leaves 
and I minced them up and I put them in a cake batter. Then I took whole leaves. I had a cake pan. I put a disc of parchment paper in the bottom, buttered the parchment paper. And I took the whole leaves and put them uh, face side down in the bottom of the pan, poured the batter over that, baked it so that when it turned out, it has this beautiful design of, you know, the leaf. And this is simple. I mean, it's not like you had to be a pastry chef or anything. It's, it's, just, it's just using things in a different way. And uh, it's a very delicious cake. And there's a beautiful picture of it in the book as well. I think sometimes people get hung up on like following recipe, you know, like cooking needs to be a little intuitive. And I'm sure you know, like people who've come up cooking or chefs can do that a little more. And then you have people who really want a recipe and get kind of scared when you deviate at all from that. I just opened the fridge. Like tonight, I made a, uh, I've already made this for tonight. I made a, a pseudo shrimp jambalaya because I had all these, I had all these vegetables. I had some shrimp and I thought, oh, let me see what I can do with this. So I, I cut up some of these beautiful beans that we have growing in the garden. It's called the Meraviglia di Venezia. It's a yellow pole bean. It's fantastic. And it keeps on going, keeps on giving. The more you pick it, the more it comes. And it'll last way into, into the fall. And you can find these seeds online, uh, Meraviglia di Venezia. And then what I do, what I did was I took a shallot. I chopped that up. I had some garlic. I had a couple zucchini that were just begging me to do something with them. I had a hot red pepper, so I used a little bit of that. And pureed tomato sauce that I had made, I added that. I let that cook with a little bit of wine, red wine vinegar, some hot red pepper flakes as well. I cooked the, the shrimp separately. And then I added some of the stock from the shrimp to this sauce. And now tonight I'm going to have the, sh the shrimp on top of that over some couscous. So that's what I made for supper, but I didn't use a recipe. I just used what I had on hand. I'll be over really soon for dinner. <laughs> well, fine. <laughs> Anytime. Do you have any tips for anyone who might want to write their own cookbook? Having done this so much, you know, a lot of people, you know, even not necessarily like one that's going to be in a store, but, you know, self-publishing, just like tips, like where to get started if you think you might want to do this. Do you have any advice? Uh, you know, not everybody is organized enough to write uh, any kind of materials. I and mean, they can scatter themselves here or there and everywhere. I would say you really should have, have a plan, have a theme, have, you know, what is it that you want to say? What is the message that you're trying to get across? And then stick with that. Because if you go to a big publishing house, they often ask you, you know, they, they want an overview of what you're going to do. You know, who's your audience? What are you going to talk about? Who knows you? Those kinds of things. But I think there's a, there is a role in self-publishing uh, for anybody who's interested in that. And, and in some places, you can find small publishing houses that are looking for new and different material, and you can investigate those. Yeah, a cookbook is so much more than just a collection of recipes, especially these days. I mean, the evolution of the cookbook is crazy, but getting into the whole, you know, some books have a story for every single recipe in them. Yes. And I like to, to do a head note like that, you know, where I'm telling a little story about the recipe and why I like it or where it comes from and why it's called what it's called. So do you have anything else you're working on? I mean, I know you've got a lot already. The book's not even out yet and you have the show, but is there anything else you've got going on? 
Well, yes, I, I, I do a lot of travel in Italy with groups, and so I will be taking, uh, in a couple of weeks, actually, a group to Umbria to cooking school with me. So they will work uh, in uh, professional schools using the local ingredients to make some classic dishes. So that's coming up, so I'm working hard on getting all of those ducks in a row. Um, as you mentioned, I have a television series, a new series coming out, uh, which was filmed in a cooking school, actually. We did a little different take on this this time. So people can look for it on their public television station. They can find it on Amazon Prime or on Create. Uh, the new book comes out in November, and if people want to pre-order it, they can go to our website, ciaoitalia.com. And the book will be available in, in bookstores and independent bookstores online. So there, there are a number of ways to get it. And the other thing I'm working on right now, and I have been working on for a while, is the foundation that I set up a few years ago to help culinary students uh, like yourself, who was at Johnson & Wales, uh, be able to realize their dreams by providing monetary uh, help for them. So we have a scholarship fund through the Mariana Esposito Foundation. And if people want to learn more about that and how they can help, they can also find that on our website, uh, chowtalia.com. People can also sign up through our website for our POSTA. It's a free newsletter that comes every month that tells you where I am, what we're doing, has recipes and tips. So it might be something that could be helpful to people. So those are the things that I'm working on now. That sounds like nothing much, right? You have tons of free time. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's great. I always have time to cook a meal for you. Oh, well, I will head on up. I, I miss New England. And, uh, you know, maybe we can catch up in person sometime. I would love that. I look forward to seeing the cookbook out in the world. I know a lot of people are going to be really interested in checking that out. And as always, I put all the links in show notes so people will be able to pre-order the book and connect with you online. That would be wonderful. And I hope to cook for you one of these days when you're back up here in New England. So thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And don't forget to plant, harvest, cook. I'm on. I'm, I'm going to be so much more ready for next year. And to all of our listeners, this has been Chris with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. Go to chefswithoutrestaurants.org to find our Facebook group, mailing list, and chef database. The community is free to join. You'll get gig opportunities, advice on building and growing your business, and you'll never miss an episode of our podcast. Have a great week. <laughs>